0: Welcome to today's Rain podcast. When it comes to risk, start thinking like a commodities trader. Risk professionals often find themselves reacting to threats rather than taking a more proactive approach. To change this mindset, they might look to the insights learned from commodities traders. Commodities traders view risk as a rapid change agent. Risk changes in likelihood, velocity, impact, and exposure over time. As you mitigate it against a risk, that risk changes and morphs into an altered state that now requires a reassessment of the mitigation's effectiveness. Commodities traders realize that their risk is not just their own. Others share the same risk and are mitigating against it, creating a complex, ever-changing risk profile. Risk professionals need to adapt more of this real-world volatility into their programs. Only by taking this volatility and complexity into account Can we truly assess the viability of risk management initiatives and continuity plans? Because events challenge our ability to identify and manage risk, the risk dynamics of the real world can provide unparalleled challenges and opportunities. Risk managers can balance resources against risk to create a more responsive and flexible risk management program. Today I am joined by Gary Sikic, Principal Logical Management Systems Corporation. Gary is an accomplished senior executive and thought leader with more than 30 years of success across the energy, telecommunication, healthcare, and manufacturing industries. Leveraging extensive experience in crisis management, risk management, and business continuity planning, he has consulted to over 100 clients in the private and public sectors. Gary's broad areas of expertise include business continuity, enterprise risk management, decision-making, advisory services, and crisis management. Founded in 1985, Logical Management Systems provides organizational solutions and advising services to ensure success and resilience. Gary has helped numerous businesses mitigate risk by having plans in place for a wide spectrum of contingencies, including pandemic, terrorism, workplace violence, and high-profile threat preparedness. Gary has developed over 4,500 plans for clients, led 400 workshops and seminars, written four books, and more than 450 articles. Gary, welcome, and thanks for joining our podcast today.
1: Oh, Thank you for having me.
0: Okay, so let's dive into this topic. I think it's really interesting because it takes kind of a different uh, look at uh, and, a, and a view of risk than a traditional risk management might take. So let's start off with a more broad topic, though, but how often and when should I conduct at-risk assessment uh, as a risk manager in today's you know globally integrated and very high risk environment that's
2: well, a good question because the the answer is not simple <laughs> um I'll look at that it is. in this perspective really. <laughs> yeah I'll look at it in this perspective the, the there's a lot of controversy right now in, in the business continuity risk management area because of a number of things that have been going on from the standpoint of change. So, risk management traditionally used to look at insurance issues and was pretty well satisfied with staying in that niche. They're now having to expand to look at more operational issues, a lot more tactical issues. And in the same vein, business continuity, which has business impact assessment or business impact analysis, however you'd like to phrase that, uh, is also in this kind of a quandary area of how often, how much depth, et cetera. Um There's a number of initiatives, and I just actually finished writing an article uh, the, other. the other day that is called Adaptive, Anti-Fragile, Resilient, or Just Trying to Be Compliant, and looks at this issue. Uh, there's a, a, a person who's putting, put out, uh, Professor David Lindstedt, who's put out a, Uh, program he calls adaptive business continuity, and it's got 10 or so principles that he looks at. Uh, One of the principles which has caused a tremendous amount of controversy is that he recommends you don't do a risk assessment and you don't do a business impact assessment. Um, So he's saying throw that out because it's not worth anything. My experience with it has been that those are very valuable in a lot of respects because they really give you a perspective on some of the things your organization 's potentially going to face now the The problem we have is that the complexity issue is becoming greater and greater as a result so kind of to set this up and to look at things, we have to look at where the essentially business organization, if you will, and I'll use government in the same context. So whether it's a government, whether it's a business, uh, private sector, public sector, doesn't really matter. The the issue of risk management becomes a lot more complex because of the intertwining of these organizations, and then you get into the international aspect. Uh, Just today, actually, was looking at a study that was recently done on – The shipping industry. And one point that comes very clear is our dependence on shipping. So ships at sea carrying cargo, 90% of international trade. So what happens when you begin to change that equation? Uh, There are a lot of initiatives within the shipping industry to move to what I'll call mega ships. So bigger and bigger ships which carry more and more cargo. Is that a good thing from a risk standpoint, or is that a bad thing from a risk standpoint? If your container is on that ship, and that ship has a problem, whether it's a fire or it's been involved in some sort of an incident, or it just sinks, um, you suddenly have a different risk profile. When you begin to start to look at the volume that they're looking at, on these ships, you begin to start to see that there's a lot more risk complexity. Uh, this kind of gets you into this, uh, What are, what I talk about this mindset of a commodities trader, um, they look at risk a lot differently. Their view of risk would be very short-term and oftentimes reviewed. So when you talk about how often you should do this, commodities traders are doing it probably every 30 seconds. Right. based on what they're looking at. Not not saying that that, that should be standard for in, industry. Um, we need to begin to rethink how we look at risk within the industry's con, uh, context.
0: Um, yeah, interesting. It, uh, it, it reminds me, I'm not sure if this is a good analogy, but mm-hmm. it used to be where we're going through, um, you know, uh, technical release cycles. There were the quarterly waterfall schedules uh, that that we'd have these big, you know, releases, technology releases every quarter. And that uh, approach is kind of, kind of by the wayside. And now there's more recently this agile approach, right, which is really continuous cycles almost on a weekly or every two-week basis that are much more flexible so you can react in more real time to what the current needs are of the business. I don't know if that's a good analogy for what you're – Sort of for the discussion that you're talking about in terms of cycling more frequently than yeah. just having a standard annual risk assessment done.
1: Yeah, I'll give you.
2: I, I give you an example of of complexity, and I think you're 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 absolutely right on the agility aspect. Think about this. Um, back in the 50s, there were like a billion pencils made every year. So there's this wonderful little book which you can get on the internet. It's called I Pencil, hmm. and So on an update basis, we're up to about fourteen billion pencils
1: made each year. So the question that is posed is how do you make a pencil? Now think about a pencil and you don't you you
2: really start to realize how little you know. In in the course of making a pencil, over one million people will be involved. Everything from the mining operations all the way down to the production and final assembly. So you begin
1: to see complexity. Uh People generally associate lead with pencils, right? Yeah. Is that a good guess or is that a bad guess? There's no lead in the pencils.
2: <laughs> lead is, is a, a mythic.
1: Yeah, okay. it, it is graphite.
2: And it's always kind of been graphite. So you look at complexity in this regard. You look at the coatings that are put on pencils. You look at all these things. And you can, as I said, you can find iPencil um, written in 1958. Uh, You can also find a couple of YouTube videos that are really good about how complex this process is and how little we know about it from an individual basis. So if we look at things... And I think where we find the confusion factor and you talk about the agile aspect and some of these other things is there in the human mind is fairly a a um, an age-old you know evolutionary kind of process. We like simplicity, things that are simple, we like concrete reasons for why we're doing things uh we like causes, and we like things that make sense, even if you know that sense happens to be wrong. So when you begin to look at risk issues, you you have to begin to rethink how you look at these issues. So a a couple of points. One, you need to recognize that your risks are not unique. They're oftentimes shared. Whatever you do to buffer your risks creates a cascade effect. And by the way, that's internal-external. And and think about in this context. If your risks are not unique and you're buffering against the risk being realized – else is out there doing something to buffer against that risk being realized? And how has the risk changed once once this whole process is put into place? So again, think about commodities traders. And unfortunately, we don't stand in pits anymore, and we don't scream out orders. We now do it all electronically, and, and that has created high-volume trading and, and the ultra-fast trading that we see today. And so you suddenly start to see that risk issues change very rapidly. So they're they're continually looking at this, and they're bouncing it off against what's my competitor. You know, it, I'll use the pet analogy. What's the guy standing next to me or the woman standing next to me in the pet doing uh, that I need to be aware of so I can offset and and don't go home broke? You know, so you, you start to see those things. Um, again, I mentioned this, and it, it, it is risk changes as it's be, what, what I call being buffered. Um, we we talk about mitigation, and I think mitigation is unfortunately a term that when people use it, I've mitigated that risk. They then walk away and say, wow, I don't have to worry about it anymore. Mitigation is, is no more than just buffering against the potential realization that that risk actualizes. So when you, when you go through that process of risk buffering, as I use it, you have to realize that you have changed the risk by what you've done to offset the potential impact. And you have to understand also that risk is not static. Risk changes. It's, it's ever changing, if you will. Um, another point that would be, I think, that's kind of critical in this regard for, for uh, people and organizations, risk is in the future. It's not in the past. And unfortunately, if we look at a lot of the planning that's being done organizations to deal with risk assessment, to deal with continuity of operations, et cetera, um, doesn't fit well in the context of the future. It really is a look back at a lot of things. This is our risk. You know, take, for example, if you recall back in 2004 through 2007, we had a uh, the threat of a global pandemic with H5N1 the bird flu which then morphed into a bunch of different H's and N's um and nobody nobody really knew for certain but the big one the big threat was the bird flu so everybody was kind of uh concerned about this and Oprah Winfrey had her show and people talked on it and scared to live in bejesus out of everybody, and everybody wanted to go out and buy masks and Tamiflu and Relenza and whatever protection they could get. No one really looked at the issue and said, how will this materialize? We all kind of fell back on looking at the past. Okay, the Spanish influenza, which everyone cites because it's in the most recent memory, if you will, of large-scale death as a result of a pandemic. But you go through history and you start looking at these things and you start to realize, okay, average
1: span of a pandemic is 500 to 800 days. How many masks for your employees do you want to get? Because
2: it's once and and done on most masks. So the risk factors become far greater because you now have other risks that you may not have anticipated, like the fact that if you bought masks or Tamiflu, and you didn't buy enough, now you're liable because you should have known better. And there's legal precedent for that. So when we start to look at this, we start to realize that there are a significant amount of things that organizations don't necessarily understand from a planning standpoint. And I'll draw to this because one of the companies I was consulting with at the time, wanted to buy masks, they had medical people on staff, and they wanted to get masks and talent flow and everything else. I looked at it and said, okay, worst case, 800-day scenario, uh, how much? Because you've got 14,000 employees, not including contractors. And you begin to start to look at, well, what do we do? What's the right thing? So risk becomes suddenly
1: a multiple factor. Do we get 14,000 employees masks for 800 days? And at what
2: cost? And then what happens when they're commuting to and from work? And is Tamiflu or Relenza, the the current, you know, the medicines that were offered, effective or going to be effective? By the way, on, on Tamiflu, Relenza, and those, they're only as effective for as long as you use them. And no one knew at that time whether the dosage would be appropriate for the emergent problem. So the risk becomes a big, huge factor. Um, the other aspect, and and I think this is kind of interesting in a lot of respects. as I said, a lot of people looked at Spanish influenza, a lot of people looked at some of the other pandemics in the 60s that we had, and based a lot of their thought process and planning on those events. Now, Spanish influenza was, what, 1918, 1919 timeframe, um the question I have for the for anybody listening on this is that what's changed and why should we begin to rethink how we're thinking about that risk issue of pandemic? And the answer is real simple. We're not practicing medicine as we did in 1917, 1918 timeframe. Things have advanced. We've gotten a lot better. Uh, just think about going to the doctor and the fear that you still have, or going to the dentist, and the fear you have of getting the needle. Why is that fear there? Because it's risk-based. You know, you, you remember it from being a
1: child and getting stuck. It it hurt. Now today, the needles are so slender and thin that you really don't have
2: the pain factor there. So the risk changes in that regard. Um, that's, I guess, one of the reasons why a lot of people don't like to go to the dentist or the yeah. doctor. Oh, um, Bill, well, so, so, you are
0: know, talking. You're talking to the son of a dentist, so uh, <laughs> I, can, I know exactly what you're doing. But you, you've you've covered a few couple things, and I want to unpack a little bit because mm-hmm. I think it would be helpful for the audience. One is you talked about complexity of risk. Um, obviously, doing uh, annual assessment or just looking at compliance. Um, is not going to be able to address the complexity and the ever changing nature of these risks. And so there's a couple questions come out of it. one is how do you address that complexity and obviously we can't mat- be the master of all risks. And so is there a prioritization or how would you answer the question someone you know listening to this saying well what do we do then uh it's so complex and it's always changing what what's the approach that we should be taking?
2: I think one of the the first things from an approach standpoint that that organizations need to look at, and this is where I see in many respects some very big disjoints in terms of the process of risk management, business continuity, the whole whole planning for the what I'll call contingency issues. Um, Those are focused at tactical and operational levels in a lot of respects. So, and I'll define those as we go through. What we really need to begin to look at is what are the things I need to look at that senior management is is looking at at a strategic level. A strategic level for the business or for the organization becomes one of looking at what are my goals and objectives. Every organization sets out mission, vision, value statements, but they also set out goals and objectives. You know, I want to grow this company by 10%. Figure it out, you know. And people run around trying to figure out how they're going to do that. Um, they set out goals to, you know, increase their customer base. Um, you, you have to look at those issues. And then you start to look at, well, if from a risk standpoint, what
1: happens if we don't achieve the goals and objectives? And based on that, we start to rethink our risk and, and
2: um, business continuity planning s- structures. We start to realize that if we don't tie these to what, the way senior management's looking at risk and at, at their business initiatives, we're going to provide them with essentially not much of value in terms of things. And I'm saying that that in the context that Value is, is something that senior management is going to look at a lot differently in many ways. So while you may be able to tell them, here's the number of workstations, here's the number of processes, here's the number of applications, all these things that we need to include number of computers, printers, et cetera, uh, in many respects, why do an, an analysis of all that when you can go to purchasing and find it all out? Uh, in the same vein, from the risk standpoint, saying that you've got insurance does not mean
1: that you're insured, okay? (laughs) So business interruption insurance is great, but read the policy
2: and then realize there are things that you need to begin to look at like contingent business interruption insurance. So a good example of that was back in the 90s, if you recall, Chicago had a flood created by putting in some pilings that suddenly punctured one of the old freight tunnels underneath the city and flooded most of downtown. Um, One of the problems that that people encountered was inability to get to the office. So I can't get to my building because the basement's flooded, so the building's closed. Um, I'm on the 30th floor of the building. What do I do because I can't do my business? So we either have an alternate spot that we have to go to or you know, call the insurance company and claim it under business interruption. What many of those tenants found was that their business interruption insurance didn't cover that because they were not the owner of the building. The building owners were covered. But they weren't because they were a tenant. So they needed a contingent business interruption writer to protect themselves on that issue. And when you get into this area of, of uh, insurance, it becomes a lot more complicated. I'm kind of simplifying things. I mean, if you look at today, you've got cyber insurance, you've got terrorism insurance, you've got all these little things that are not included in the basic business interruption insurance. So to say we're covered because we've got this means that you've got a risk exposure you haven't really anticipated and you haven't b- begun to plan for it. Uh, the other aspectless insurance like anything you're not going to get your money right away not necessarily it's not like on tv where somebody says oh your house burnt down here's a check uh it doesn't work quite that way so you've got this delay and what do you do when you have that delay and suddenly you find yourself desperate and you're in a situation where your business is suddenly at a critical stage of survival uh classic example was a fire that I worked on, a small company that had a pretty good-sized government contract out in Phoenix, Arizona. And they had a situation occur where, unfortunately, their building burnt down. And so they had to move literally
1: across the street, and they're in a fairly large garage complex. Uh, And they were having fits. The president of the company was, was just, you know, didn't know
2: what to do, and they couldn't figure out where, you know, oh, gosh, how are we going to pay our people? What are we going to do? How do we stay in business? All these other things. And here was a risk issue that they hadn't anticipated. And here was another issue that, they, that falls into the business continuity area in terms of things. So there was this panic, if you will. And finally, one morning, we were sitting there, had this big garage door open to get kind of the cool air for the
1: morning breeze. And I noticed that the postal delivery was going on. And I'm watching, and
2: right across the street where our burnt-out shell of a building is, this post guy is cramming mail into the mailbox, which is still standing out the street. I walked over and I said, Excuse me, I said, you realize the company's over here across the street now and they're a no little longer because the you know, building's burnt down? He says, Yeah, but they didn't put a change of address in, so we as the post office have to continue to deliver to this address. So I said, Well, took all the mail out, turned out when we got it back and sorted things, all these checks, which were what they were dependent on to keep the business going were coming in but no one changed the address. So a risk that they hadn't hadn't begun to assess of what happens if the building burns down and we have to move, what do we do about mail service? Um right. it, it, it it gets complex in a lot of ways for companies in that regard because in the heat of the moment there there is uh, panic and chaos and confusion. They lose right. sight of things.
0: So uh so let's 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 it's definitely complex, and what and I'm reminded of the phrase, the best laid, the best laid plans, right? Um, this whole concept of not necessarily having visibility based on past experience into what's going to happen going forward. And this concept of, I love your concept of this risk buffering issue, because as you start to plan or take action, you're actually changing the risk and you've got to continuously revise. Am I thinking about that the right way, and what if we take it back to the theme here about um learning from you know commodities trader thinking, is that the way to be thinking about it and how, how do we how do risk managers begin to change their mindset around that
2: yeah i think I think one of the another example I would give I was involved in the biofuels industry with some colleagues uh for a while um, a true risk that no one really looked at very closely unfortunately but The the gist of which was one of our, uh, quote, partner companies, et cetera, that was in this biofuels area uh, was a refinery operation in Indianapolis, Indiana, and they would produce biofuels. And biofuels would then get shipped via tank car to California, where they had a contract with a company in California. Now... The contract was, was kind of an interesting one because it immediately got the commodity guys just to, to looking at it saying, whoa, we've got to look at some issues here um, based on a quick analysis. Okay, the analysis was this. Uh, you're going to put this stuff in a, a rail tank or you're going to ship it out to California. The spot price when you produce it is effectively your cost. So if it costs 25 cents to produce. Uh But the contract, as it's written, says that when it gets to California, they'll pay you whatever the spot price is at that point. So a spot's above $0.25, cents, you've made a profit. If it's dropped below $0.25, cents, you've lost money. Now, that sounds like a fairly simple, straightforward, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll take the risk kind of equation, until you start to look at some details. How long do you think it takes a rail tank car to get from Indianapolis to Los Angeles?
0: Hmm, I have no idea. (laughs) Take a guess. Go ahead. Uh, Eight hours.
2: Eight hours. How about 30 days?
0: Oh, would not have thought that.
2: Yeah. So your eight-hour guesstimate, (laughs) based on spot, you're thinking, oh, okay, it's 30 days out. Because when you ship via rail, trains are assembled, disassembled, reassembled, and, it, and sometimes things sit on sidings for a while until they get the appropriate amount of cars heading in the direction that you want to go. So now you've got this sort of window of days. And let's say, say 30 for the for the kind of a, a max look, but it could it could be less, could be more, depends on the level of the traffic. What could
1: change in that 30-day time frame? Obviously, the, the spot price of biofuels could go
2: up, down, sideways. It, it, it's just going to be one, one of those things that's going to change. If you can pr- predict that that's correct. It's going to change. It may go up, may go down, it may, may go sideways, but it's going to change. Now, what can you do to hedge the risk that you get it out there and it's 30 days out and now the spot price is $0.15 cents and it costs you $0.25 cents to make? So now what, what we end up doing is looking at how do we hedge that against other products to offset the risks that we have with the product that we're sending. So you might hedge it against you know, corn, soybeans, other, other products that are similar in terms of the biofuel that you're shipping. Uh, you know, and there are other contingencies. Let's look at the fact that uh, biofuel had to be at, at a certain specification. So when you bake it, they they test it, they lab test, they send the lab test. When it travels, over time, biofuel degrades, like anything, gasoline degrades. Uh, so you, you end up with a product 30 days out, is it the same spec? And now when I get it there, are they going to test and say, hey, this is off spec, we don't want it, send us what we, what we need. Now you're stuck not only with the cost of production, but now a tank car sitting in, in California that you've got to figure out what to do with it in terms of getting either getting it back, disposing of the biofuel, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so you can start to see the complexity of this risk issue that sounded relatively simple becoming enormously large scale in that regard. Um yeah. so the the whole complexity is, is one that was is one that I think we have to look at. The other thing is you have to look at how do we diversify against the risks that we're facing? And by diversifying, I mean, what do we do to offset so that we can gain in other areas that will allow us to help the mitigation process continue to with this with this concept I talk about, buffering. So as I'm buffering uh, and mitigating, I'm actually looking at changing my approaches or looking at other things that could offset. Um, there's opacity in what I'll call nonlinearity, and nonlinearity and opacity are pretty fascinating in a lot of respects. Think of something that's opaque. You know, opaque means you generally cannot see very clearly through it, uh, opaque windows, things like that. Most risk has opacity in it, which means that you don't really see it all because risks it kind of nonlinear. And if we start thinking about linearity, you know, problem solution on a straight line, realize that there's a lot of things you're going to miss. And some of the things you miss is that when you start the decision making process, you've identified a risk you want to go mitigate against that, you want to buffer against it. Now you've made it, you have to make some decisions. So think about the decision process you picked A as your choice. Now, is my decision the right decision? Or is it the wrong decision? And then sometimes you realize that right decision, wrong decision, can actually flip flop quite a bit. So it might have been the wrong decision, but it worked out well for you. It might have been the right decision, and you end up with the exposure causing a problem. So now you have to begin to start look at how do I continually evaluate? How do I how do I look at what I've done to offset this risk, the buffer against it? and realize that I can't just put it in a box and say I'm done with it. It's like I've done this, I don't have to worry about it. You, you consistently have to continue to look at it as it as it evolves, because it's going to change. So when we look at that issue of risk and this uh, aspect of opacity, nonlinearity, linearity complexity, uh, the fact that risk isn't static, we start to see some things changing in a lot of respects. So, just as an example, I'll give you a, a great, uh, we've had these, Everybody trying to define things. So there's business continuity definitions, there's risk management definitions, there's other definitions of words like uh, resilient. So what does resilient mean? You talked about agile, and agile's another word, but let's look at resilient just from a standpoint. Everybody wants to be resilient. They want to bounce back quickly from whatever it is that's caused the disruption they're faced with. Yet, when you look at resilient, where where do you find the most appropriate definition? Or where do you find the definition everybody can agree on? And, by the way, currently nowhere. Uh, I'll give you an example. McKinsey and Company just did an article, a white paper, that I, I found very interesting that said, It's called Bubbles Pop, downturn Stop, and they're looking at a new resilience playbook emerging in which you see a number of things based on accelerated decisions, resilience interventions, and a whole concept of bringing in uh, a resilience nerve center and other things. We we might call that in business continuity terms a command center. You start to see these things evolving. That, you know, McKinsey's kind of senior management level as far as consulting in a lot of respects, they are looking at that, senior management's looking at that. This isn't trickling down to what it means to be resilient in the business continuity or risk management standpoint. In a
1: lot of respects, you look at business continuity, resilience, what does it mean? It means I get my systems up and running quickly. But that's not your business necessarily, although today business is so embedded with the
2: information systems aspect that it's becoming less and less clear as to what the business is. So we we start to see these things, and we start to see that there are perceptions and definitions that don't marry up very well. How do you talk to senior management about risk? You have to do it in terms that they understand. And that they're willing to then make a decision on so that they can move forward and so that you can, you know, again, marry up with the goals and objectives of the organization. All the great risk management you do is not going to help you a bit if you can't meet your goals and objectives.
0: But- Uh, Gary, these are extremely helpful, uh, I think, uh, examples that you've provided, numerous uh, examples of this. Um, And so let me try and summarize a little bit what I heard in terms of the lessons from commodities traders. One is risk is is complex and continuously changing. Um, You have to address uh, contingencies and dependencies along the way. You got to hedge your bets. Uh, for things that might not be evident now but might come out later. Um, and you have to be continuously resetting your plan uh due to your term risk buffering where actions have an impact on the risk themselves. Uh, are there other ones that I might miss from the lessons of commodity trades? I think these are really helpful.
2: Yeah, I think that, that the things that I would point out to people is is that they need to be aware of that this is not as arduous a process as it sounds. So um, Bridgewater, which is a big hedge fund, has come up and they did they did something that I was pretty interesting. And I've sort of, st- st- I won't say stolen, but borrowed, uh, begun to look at it from the standpoint of when you begin to look at contingencies and, and planning issues, you, you really start to look at um how do i how do I put resources against risk and so what what they came up with was a concept they called risk parity now if you apply it to risk management and uh, business continuity planning contingency planning et cetera the approach is essentially a focus of the allocation of risk usually defined by exposure, velocity, volatility, rather than allocation of assets to the risk. So they say, here's the risk, what's the exposure we have to it, how fast, velocity, what's the volatility, how how unstable is this, and how do we allocate assets to that? And the the thing about risk parity is, is that it allows you to take assets, allocated against the risk, you can leverage or deleverage, again, as that risk changes so that you begin to start to see that there's an opportunity to be very uh, flexible, as you would point out, and I think you used a a good word, agile, in terms of how I'm dealing with risk. So I've got this perspective now that says I'm going to allocate resources to this risk when it changes, I'm going to do a reallocation of resources so that it becomes less of a taxing situation on resources and I can be more flexible with how I use my resources. So that, that I think, is, is a critical point when we start to look at how we deal with um, the aspects of, uh, again, nonlinearity, opacity, and what I will call reactivity, or how do we deal with consequences. Things happen... We need to plan for consequences, not necessarily causes. Causes are great if you're doing a uh, NTSB study where they they come in after an airplane crash and they figure out what was the cause of the crash. Um, But that takes time. And we're still, I think, with what, the Boeing 737s, still trying to figure out what the problems are. So w- when we start to look at it, that time issue, we start to realize that things are continuing to move move forward. It's what are the consequences of all this? Now look at the consequences that Boeing has suffered. Um, look at the consequences that other companies that have had large scale events, uh, you know, Exxon with the the Valdez spill in Alaska in the nineteen eighties, which we still talk about like yesterday. Uh, BP with their Deepwater Horizon, but those events have had long term consequences on those organizations, monetary in a lot of respects. But we really don't think about those things in that context. I'll give you another kind of a classic. If you recall, there was a volcano that erupted in Iceland a few years back. I will not anticipate, I won't try to even say the name because. I think they call it E14, which made it a lot simpler. But this volcano erupted, and it was spewing pumice and gas and all kinds of other stuff into the atmosphere. And it disrupted
1: air traffic for a little while. Europe, U.S., We pretty much did a lot of, of uh, impact to air traffic. Now, we're all concerned about
2: things like CO2 huge risk. What are we going to do? Global warming, etc. The
1: question I have for you is this. When that volcano erupted and you grounded all these airplanes, was it a negative effect or was it a positive effect? The
2: negative risk being you grounded all these planes, cost a bunch of money, all this stuff went up in the atmosphere, oh my god, we're polluting. This is horrible. Positive effect
1: it erupts the planes are grounded, and wow, the the air is cleaner. What do you think? So here's the quick answer, because I won't put you on the spot. The airplanes, had they not been grounded,
2: would have emitted somewhere around 300,000 or so tons, I believe, of CO2 into the atmosphere. Just normal operations. The volcano erupts. It Emits seven thousand tons of CO two into the atmosphere, a net savings of two hundred and seventy thousand tons to the positive, if you will, from a risk perspective, of less global well, global warming gases going into the atmosphere. So, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And if you were having to be the contingency planner for the airline, what do you what do you tell your management? So you, you see that these things become much more uh, of, a, of a how would you put it of a rapidly moving uh, planning exercise, if you will, that is executed very quickly and that continually has to change. Again, go back to your example of agile. We have to be a, be in that process of being. Able to be flexible and to change and begin to to work with risk as risk evolves.
0: So Gary, this has been great. I mean, we can, I can, I can listen to some of the stories you have uh, all day, but we're running up against our time limit here. I think mm-hmm. your last point around the risk parity model and and using that uh, for allocation purposes, I think, is an interesting one. I'm sure our listeners will want to learn more about that. Um but I want to just take time here to thank you for joining for us today and um uh any last minute words for our audience?
2: Yeah, I think one of the things that we haven't touched on in in this regard is this issue of what we call residual risk um, The aspect of residual risk is kind of interesting in that in that we oftentimes overlook residual risk there's always a risk that, as I said, it changes, it becomes lessened potentially, but there's a residual risk that it could evolve into something. So when you begin to look at supply chain, when you begin to look at uh, planning for contingencies that are sort of unforeseen, there is a series of things you have to begin to start to assess, not only the risk, but what's the residual risk as this unfolds. A good example today, you've got a trade war going on between China and the U.S. and may have a potential trade war with, with Mexico before it's all over with. Uh, all these tariffs and things that are being put in on both sides really have a negative effect in a lot of ways of causing trade disruption. So if you look at the cost to consumers of things, um there's There's a bit of an issue of residual risk, okay, we put the tariffs in place because we want want to make these guys do what's right well, in that effect is what's it costing you for you know, your cell phone, your avocados whatever whatever product that's suddenly being taxed by this tariff, and are you willing to pay the price or can you pay the price? How do you have to now adjust to that risk? Because you've now got residual risk, which is that you can't do certain things because your resources are being focused on the current situation. So good you know, good example, avocado you know, you may love avocados, right? but you want to go on vacation and suddenly you find yourself faced with, well, can we afford to do that? Or is our grocery bill suddenly changing so that we have to face this issue? Uh, because things are made in China, like a lot of things, tires for cars, uh, needles for syringes, uh number of other products. What happens if, and here you suddenly see residual risk kicking in? So there's a risk that you've done this and you, you've you know, addressed the, the issue. But then all these other things start to leak, or leak around that issue and become a risk that you need to begin to start to think about. Um, last go. example, pandemic-wise, I sat with the chairman of the board of the Chicago Board of Trade when I was writing my book on pandemic planning. And initially, he was a little skeptical about what he can contribute to the introduction. And I said, well, you know, here's a paper on you know, potential economic consequences. Got a call from him a couple of days later, so get to my office. I, I, I need to talk to you. I'll write the intro. I'm thinking, wonderful. This is fantastic. Got at his office, and he said, we're going to have a problem. And I thought, yeah, you know, you're not going to have pit trading, et cetera. And he said, no, 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 bigger problem than that. He said, we're going to have a food supply problem, which got me into looking at things and said, what exactly are we looking at? Forty percent was the calculation by the CDC and other entities of the potential impact as far as people getting sick. So, 40% of the population, right? So, as he pointed out very succinctly, something that I hadn't looked at until I pointed out essentially was that there are like eighty thousand agricultural inspectors in the in the you know the US these are the guys that put the USDA stamp of approval on the side of beef, the bushel of corn, etc etc. If forty percent of them are out of out because they're sick, there won't be enough agricultural inspectors to inspect the products. None of the people who trade those commodities will take the risk of trading them because they might get tainted product, which they can't get rid of. Suddenly, you see a stoppage to the food chain. Now, it was pointed out, and I thought, my gosh, I didn't see this, uh, what I coined as a transparent vulnerability. And he was like, yeah, this is a real concern if this were to happen. is I can train you, you know, how to clear trades. He said, I can do that. It's fairly simple. I can't train you to take a look at a side of beef and tell me whether it's good or not. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, your point is very valid. We don't see these things as we need to begin to see the
1: broader perspectives of risk.
0: Well, Gary, this is really helpful. You've given us a lot and our audience a lot to think about today. Uh, Again, thank you for joining us, and um, uh, thanks for our audience for tuning in. Great. Thank you. Thank you for joining today's podcast. If you like this content and want more, go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a RAIN member. RAIN members get exclusive access to webinars, podcasts, the daily risk book email digests, expert content, and more. So go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a RAIN member today.